episode 47 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Today I'm talking about May Clark and James Whale's pre-code picture Waterloo Bridge from 1931. Usually on the podcast I don't cover an actor's biography outside the picture I'm talking about for each episode, but I'd like to cover a little bit of May's life story to begin with because her background isn't as well known as many other queens of women's pictures. We're very lucky that May conducted a series of interviews over a period of two years with James Curtis. They finished their recording sessions shortly before she died in 1992. James Curtis compiled their discussions for a book called Featured Player, an oral autobiography of May Clark, which was published in 1996. James Curtis then later published a biography of James Whale called James Whale, A New World of Gods and Monsters, published in 1998. As a girl, May Clark took dance classes, which led to performing on the stage, and then by necessity, to help her parents and siblings, she took a job as a showgirl in New York, starting when she was 14 years old. Her mother kept in touch by phone, but largely May was living on her own at a very tender age. Her roommates and her new life as a quarine just so happened to be Walda Mansfield, who later married songwriter-composer Walter Donaldson, and Barbara Stanwyck, then known by her birth name, Ruby Stevens. Ruby took one look at May and said, first thing we got to do is get rid of those curls. At the time, May had babyish sausage curls. They shared their clothes and their resources like flatmates do. May describes their normal routine of dancing all night, often from, say, 8 until 2, but in the afternoon, they went to the theater to see all the shows. Some days they went to see musicals and others were reserved for drama. Ruby, Walda, and May improvised their own Sassmouth Dames acting school. They would share the plots of each production they had seen and then act out key scenes for each other and give each other feedback. In 1928, Willard Mack, one of the most prestigious Broadway impresarios, was putting together a new production, and he invited Ruby to audition. May and Walda coached her, helping to prepare for the scene. They ran it over and over with Ruby until she was ready. The play was called The Noose. Ruby played the part of a working-class girl who was secretly in love with a man who was imprisoned and facing the death penalty. In a big dramatic scene, her character pleads with the warden for the man's body after execution so she can give it a proper burial. That scene not only won the part for Ruby, but it also won her the acclaim of Broadway and the interest of men like David Belasco, who reportedly bestowed the name Barbara Stanwyck on the young performer. That scene from the noose was the one that Barbara Stanwyck performed for her only screen test in Hollywood, the one that Frank Capra saw the one that made him cry and prompted him to cast Barbara in his picture at Ladies of Leisure from 1930. Barbara Stanwyck was a solid dame. When she was given that plum role on the noose for the New York stage, she told Willard Mack that she needed him to find two roles for her friends, whom she never worked without. May and Walder were added to the cast. As a result of that and other performances, May Clark was then invited to Hollywood. In a standout line in this series of interviews, May said of Barbara, she was the Duchess, always. 
May Clark had married into vaudeville royalty when she was only 17 years old when she wed Lou Bryce, brother of Fanny Bryce, star of the stage. May was only 19 years old when she began working in Hollywood. If you're wondering what she looked like as a chorus girl, track down Night World from 1930. The Russians have it like everything else. May features in a dazzling nightclub routine choreographed by Busby Berkeley. At the top of her career, May Clark made nine pictures during the 1931 um, film series. Among the hits she featured in that year were The Front Page, The Public Enemy, Frankenstein, and Three Wise Girls with Jean Harlow and Marie Prevost. And of course, her starring role in the film adaptation of Robert Sherwood's play, Waterloo Bridge. When she went to audition for the role in Waterloo Bridge, she performed the juicy scene from the noose. May knew the part as well as Barbara did, since she spent so much time preparing her friend. May spoke frankly about what happened during the height of her motion picture career. In 1932, overworked and exhausted, after averaging one picture per month, she suffered a breakdown and had a two-month hospital stay that was entirely against her will. She had sought medical attention for arrest and treatment for a common sinus ailment, but had bad luck when she chose the doctor and the hospital. She was tortured with a variety of so-called mental health therapies, everything from electroshock treatment without sedation, heavy doses of morphine to keep her subdued, and bound in hot or cold water tubs. The hospital kept her loved ones away and drained her bank account in the process. May said the only reason they released her ultimately was that they were sure she was going to die, and they didn't want to invite any investigation that would result. May Clark endured a second forced hospital stay at the hands of her family in the mid-1930s. Her parents committed her for behavior that was run-of-the-mill for, say, Betty Davis or James Cagney. When she turned voluble in protest and objected to the hectic demands of the studio, got a little drunk or mouthed off, she was subjected to another round of institutional torture. Like Frances Farmer or Jean Tierney, women who buckled under the pressure of the 12-hour days while being their family's meal ticket, they were women who were coded unstable and forced into psychiatric submission. In the late 30s, May Clark left Hollywood for more than two years after she married a pilot who was based in South America. When the marriage busted up and May returned to resume her acting career, she had to hustle for work and for the rest of her life, really, until she officially retired in 1980 and moved into the actor's home. May Clark had swallowed her pride and prevailed upon old friends for work. She went to MGM to the men she knew socially, Benny Tao and Eddie Mannix, with her hat in her hand for work. She didn't ask for anything other than the opportunity to do bit parts for money. She put her case to them. She said she had name recognition and that audiences would get a real kick out of seeing her pop up on screen. She asked for any little part that would keep her working. She kept her self-respect as an actor. In a two-year period, May amassed a list of 21 credits at MGM. Among them, such classics as Singing in the Rain, Annie Get Your Gun, and Pat and Mike. May had a small scene in The Catered Affair. She played the seamstress in the scene where Betty Davis chooses Debbie Reynolds' wedding dress. 
May said that when they shot the scene, she was on her hands and knees pinning the hem of the gown to the floor. She wasn't sure, though, if Betty would recognize her or if she would speak to her because when they were cast together in Waterloo Bridge in 1931, Betty had snubbed May's gesture of friendship. In 1957, one night, May settled down to watch a local station on TV broadcast Frankenstein. May received a terrible shock when she saw the program was hosted by a woman who claimed to be May Clark, and she looked far older than May's 47 years. The woman on screen was addled, looking like an old souse, talking about how when she made the picture, she was young and beautiful and could pay her bills, but now she could no longer pay her bills. During the commercial breaks, the actress impersonating May made disparaging personal comments about the state of May's life and career. May was still working as an actor at the time and was terribly hurt. In a hair salon, soon after the broadcast, May heard women gossiping about her. What happened to May Clark and how awful she looked and what's wrong with her talking like that anyway? People had not taken it as a spoof, which is what the TV station later contended. May approached the women in the salon. She pulled out her ID, her SAG card, and she insisted it wasn't her. After that, May sued the TV station for $1 million. Initially, she lost the case, but then upon appeal, the station settled with her for $10,000. During production of A Big Hand for the Little Lady in 1966, in which May had a small role, she approached the star, Henry Fonda, one day on set and introduced herself. She told him who she was briefly and asked if he could keep her in mind, if he could ever use her in any small part. While she was in mid-sentence, he got up and walked away. He never acknowledged her or responded in any way. It's worth noting that in the interview for her oral history, May offers excuses for Henry Fonda's behavior. She's so generous. She figured he felt embarrassed or was overwhelmed by emotion and that walking away was his attempt to save his face or maintain some emotional distance. To me, it sounds like a typical response from a jerk with an empathy deficit. At an industry reception one night, May met Leo G. Carroll. She mentioned her role in Waterloo Bridge and asked him how he liked her in it, since she knew that he had been in the remake from 1940. Leo asked what role she had played. May responded that she was the star of the picture. Leo corrected her. He said, I was in that film and the star was Miss Vivian Lee. Instead of arguing with him, though, May dropped the subject. Then later, she asked him for a ride home to her flat in North Hollywood. When they arrived back at May's, she brought him in with his daughter, who had attended the function with him. And in a moment, she pulled out her poster for Waterloo Bridge with her name in top billing. May said his mouth fell open, that he said he never knew it. May's pre-code version had been wiped out of memory by the Mervyn Leroy remake from 1940. In May's interviews with James Curtis, there's a picture of May pulling into MGM lot in 1933 in the back of a chauffeur-driven Rolls-Royce. It hangs in the book above a picture on the same page of May in MGM in 1952, and she's riding a bicycle around the lot, dressed in a costume as a maid. The two photographs bookended her career, she felt. 
May scrambled for work in radio, television, TV commercials, bit parts, and film, and watched most of which she was made a star for fade into oblivion. She knew that when she died, what she would be most remembered for was the breakfast scene in The Public Enemy when James Cagney smashed a grapefruit in her face. After she retired in 1980, with over 100 film and TV credits, she moved into the motion picture and television country house and hospital. When its most famous resident, Mary Astor, died in 1987, May Clark won the honor. And then she also inherited the large tricycle that Mary used as conveyance around the property. May then died of cancer in 1992. But in the pre-code era, she was a star. May worked with prestigious directors such as Kenneth Hawkes, Bill Wellman, Todd Browning, James Whale, Raoul Walsh, Dorothy Arzner, Roy Del Ruth, and Woody Van Dyke. Producers such as David O. Selznick, Daryl Zanuck, Harry Cohn, Carl Lemley Jr., Howard Hughes, Sam Goldwyn, Marion Cooper, and Walter Wanger wanted her in their pictures. In, other, in her own words, she was cute, she was skilled at underplay, and she had a bang and figure, and she held her own against actors with far more experience. When she took rough treatment from men on screen, such as Cagney with the grapefruit, or when Cagney pulled her by the hair in Lady Killer, women in the audience wanted to grasp her in a protective embrace. Cagney wasn't really pulling her by the hair in Lady Killer, by the way. May explained that she just simply held onto his wrists and he pulled her from there rather than her scalp. When May was jilted by a lover in Penthouse or Three Wise Girls, she reminds women of a friend they all know well. May Clark was a regular dame, one of us. She plays the friend we all have who winds up with the stinkers. Viewers can see the vulnerability in Meg Clark the way other women like Barbara Stanwyck or Joan Crawford always seemed bulletproof. During the interview with James Curtis, May talks about what she thinks James Whale saw in her. I think Whale saw something I know I had then, and that is a basic confusion and insecurity I didn't mind projecting and putting into my work. It would give a little timidity to a scene that normally might have had a lot of bite in it, and I think that might be what he saw in me. With this innate sense of reserve, May developed a keen talent for underplay that draws the camera and the viewer in very close to see what her character Myra Deauville experiences. James Whale said of her character in Waterloo Bridge, the tragedy is not in the life the woman has led, but the fact that she falls in love. Pardon me, but only a man would say some nonsense like that. Lovers of pre-code pictures have many, many examples of women who paid the bills with sex work or were promiscuous and then had a happy ending with a man who truly loved them in the fade out. One of the best examples for my money of this is Carol Lombard in Virtue from the following year in 1932. She's a sex worker that Pat O'Brien meets, and despite all of his so-called knowledge of women, he thinks she's a stenographer. When he finds out the truth, he's shaken. In fact, he's gutted. You can see on his face that he wrestles with everything he's ever been told about women and believed his whole life. For Pat O'Brien, there are good women and bad women, and that's it. He tells his roomie all about it, how women just want to hook you with lies and stories. But to his everlasting credit, his character gets over his training. He loves Carol no matter what. 
This scenario, the one where women are not punished for having a sexual history, is one of the bedrock themes of pre-code woman's pictures, and it remains radical as hell today. Poor Myra Deauville doesn't have a happy ending. Not that I'm going to spoil the plot for you, but for me, it's not because it was made impossible by the way she earned her living. Instead, Myra's tragedy can be understood by what the 19-year-old soldier Roy Cronin says. He's played by Kent Douglas. At one point during the night they meet, Roy tries to get Myra to accept money to pay her rent. When she refuses, Roy justifies it with a simple explanation. He says, some of us are lucky and some of us aren't. Her pride wounded, feeling vulnerable, she snaps, well, aren't you the prince of the beggar maids? For me, the whole picture comes back to Roy's observation. Both war and love produce senseless casualties. Waterloo Bridge isn't a morality play designed to tell us that sex workers don't deserve a happy ending. The picture lays the tragedy as a whim of fate. The ambivalent cruelty of war and love mixes chaos that comes from being unlucky. Just as some soldiers die in war, some women are collateral damage. Myra wasn't damned. She just had hapless, unfortunate luck during turbulent times. War is chaos. The Depression is chaos. And Myra Deauville was one of its victims. May Clark's Myra embodied what happened to women when the economy falls through the floor during war or the Depression. Women entered sex work because they have bills to pay. It doesn't mean that they're somehow different or immoral or less deserving than other women. During the pre-code era, audiences saw reality with suspended judgment. Pre-code woman's pictures cultivated empathy for women's experiences. For a brief period, from 1930 to 1934, a dame could have a past and not be made biblical or villainous. Waterloo Bridge opens with an ending, the the end of a stage production, but also the end of Myra's prosperity and success. As Myra takes her last evening bow, and she changes backstage with her high-stepping sorority, She opens a package an admirer sent that contains a prize tribute, one of the best that a showgirl could claim, a first stole. I'll come back to that first stole in a few moments. Fast forward three years after the show has closed. We know the time lapse from the theater signage that boasts how long a show has been running. Regretting that she didn't pick the long-running show, since she would still be employed, Myra stands outside a theater scanning the crowd. Myra watches a full-length version of her stole alight from the curb on an older woman in spotless ermine, decked out with jewels, surrounded by patrons, before the curtain rises. Myra isn't dressed like a stereotypical sex worker we're used to seeing on screen. She's not wearing feathers, red, satin, lace, or anything loud, or that screams come, come hither. She's wearing a simple wool skirt and jacket. The fabric of her jacket is worn so thin that when she puts her hands in her front pockets, every crease in her knuckles appears visible. Myra is not living the high life. She's barely scraping by. When people crack sarcastic comments about why the young soldier Roy Cronin, who Myra meets during an air raid, doesn't know she's a sex worker, they miss the point entirely. 
No woman in God's creation ever had to advertise for sex work by dressing in a stereotypical way. Even if she had the funds, Myra wouldn't spend them on tatty pieces to announce how she paid the bills. In her mind's eye, she's a showgirl down on her luck. She hasn't committed to sex work as a permanent job description. She makes do for the time being. It's no secret that James Whale was disenchanted with Kent Douglas in the role. He felt that his fortunes were tied to the very green actor. Kent is a total greenhorn, but it really works to add to his believability in the part. He's supposed to be a 19-year-old innocent, and he looks it. He sees Myra Deauville uh, for who she is rather than how she earns a living, and that makes him heroic in my book. During the scene at Myra's flat, when the pressure builds around her secret as a sex worker and she breaks down, undone because she fears his response, Kent Douglas weeps and he is absolutely convincing. With soaked cheeks, he appeals to Myra. He doesn't know what to do to soothe her. Later, when the landlady tells him the truth about what she does for a living, he barks at her, you shut your dirty mouth. And when Myra confesses to Roy's mother, played by Enid Bennett, by saying, I could have married him, we have another character who shows empathy and mercy for Myra. We, we expect the older woman to condemn her, but she doesn't. She weeps for her also. Waterloo Bridge hoists the audience's sympathy and moral compass in a new direction. That's no small task to achieve in 80 minutes. Just like the best woman's pictures, Waterloo Bridge uses fashion as a key aspect of storytelling. For example, Fur often does some heavy lifting in a woman's picture. A Fur tells the story of a woman's fortunes. James Well tells the fortunes of the showgirl Myra with the ermine stole. When she first receives it backstage from a wealthy admirer, it's as white as snow and fluffy as a pillow in Jean Harlow's boudoir. After three years pass, it looks dull, bedraggled, moth-eaten. Back in her tiny room, Myra hangs it by its neck on the back of her door so that it looks like it's posed for the gallows, grim and lifeless. What was once luxuriant turned shabby. Myra's fur calls to mind the old woman in Violette Leduc's brilliant novella, The Lady and the Little Fox Fur, which was published in 1965. The story follows the routine of an old woman in Paris who's so poor that she has to count out the coffee beans each morning as though they were gold coins. She foregoes bread so that she might have the daily communion of a ride on the metro during rush hour, the press and the heat of bodies that soothe her and tether her to the land of the living. Anyway, lonely, feeling invisible, she finds a fox fur stall in the rubbish one day. The multi-pelt becomes a child, a friend, a lover of sorts, whom she smothers with kisses. At one point, the old woman notes, a stomach is not a rule of grammar. One has to take what comes. It made me think of Myra and how the rules of propriety collide with the physical anguish that results from being poor and hungry. What use is virtue on an empty stomach? After Roy leaves her little attic flat the night they meet, Myra has to return to the streets for trade. 
She sits down at her makeshift dressing table, and every moment of the scene makes May Clark a star, a queen of woman's pictures. Lipstick, perfume, she fluffs out her hair a little. The look of self-appraisal is as hard and unvarnished as the cold pillars on Waterloo Bridge. Then Myra pulls on her hat, which she tugs down and adjusts by summoning all the courage of a soldier who enters a foxhole. It's the way she pulls it on, positions it, tucks her hair into place that is absolutely devastating. The battle that women such as Myra wage for survival never has the benefit of a white flag or a peace treaty. I'll close the episode with a brief excerpt from May's oral autobiography. So I went over and made the test, and they liked it instantly. The negotiations began, but they did not include me. The negotiations were strictly between the two studios. This was one of the first major pictures under the new regime of Carl Lemley Jr. I found him to be a charming young man, well-met, but he was strictly the well-suited executive. I couldn't get a closeness with him, so I didn't know what they were planning. I had to find out later that he said to Harry Cohen of Columbia, if we give May this part, we'll make a star for you. We'll have to invest in her, and we won't be able to make enough from the picture to overcome that. So how about we both own her? When she works for us, we pay the agreed-upon salary she has with you. When she works for you, you do the same. All the studios had the standard contract of a 40-week guarantee. No player ever worked more than 40 weeks, so you could count more or less on another 12 weeks with pay, R&R. Well, this went through all right, and I made the picture, and then I belonged to both of them. As soon as I was finished with the one, bang, they had another one ready. I did that one, then Frankenstein, then over to Columbia for one, then another one at Columbia, then back to Universal, back and forth. That's why I made nine pictures, major at the time that year. Do you recall the kind of mood that James Whale wanted you to get across? Did he talk to you about the character in great depth? Did you review the script and discuss it with him before you began the film? Oh, yes, we did. It was all very bookish. It was not like the average movie I'd made up until then. Did he have a feel of giving the character to you in any way? Or did you have a strong perception of the character coming in, which is essentially what you played? I had a big idea because I had seen the play. Did you find Waterloo Bridge in any way intimidating? Oh, no, there was a sudden joy. At last, I could get my teeth into something and really bite through it and spit it out. I really had something to say. How would you contrast the character of Myra with Molly Malloy? Well, they had a similar poignancy, sincerity, and a loathing for what they were doing. But I think that Myra had more taste, better taste from circumstantial education only. The real characters were very similar. Did you find your work as Molly Malloy helped you prepare for Waterloo Bridge? In the sense that you want to have a part that you can chew on. Not strictly the type, no. I would have loved to have played a debutante who got raped and then shipped out at night on a boat that wound up in Timbuktu as the sailor's delight, doped up every step of the way, unavoidable, and no way out. A character like that survives or dies. That would be a part to play, like in the Shanghai gesture. I always wanted to do the mother in Shanghai gesture. Wonderful part. Both equally marvelous parts, the mother and the daughter. 
How did Universal differ from the other studios you had worked at? I believe it was considered a step down the ladder, maybe only one step, because they catered more to the sensational and the bizarre. They didn't present the light, pleasant evening's entertainment. They were doing westerns, Lon Chaney pictures, serials, oddball comedies. Wonderful pictures nonetheless, but different from other studios. What kind of handling do you feel you got from Universal? Were you conscious at the studio besides the crew who were working with you? Not very much. I don't say that critically. I was free to be interviewed by the bosses at their leisure. I would always be on time, look the best I could, speak to them as intelligently as possible, and hope that my agent would do the rest. Once they decided that they wanted me, then the agent would tell me. So word came to you circuitously, in a sense. No one came around, slapped you on the back and said, gee, that was great, let's do another one. No, no, no. That was reserved for people who brought their money with them, invested and became co-producers. I wouldn't want that. I never aspired that high. Were you conscious of the writer on the film, Ben Levy? Did you meet him? Just in passing, good-looking, well-shaved. Obviously, you met Robert Emmett Sherwood because we have photographic evidence of that. What are your memories of him? Mr. Sherwood was very tailored and a fine gentleman, but I was not such an intellectual equal to him that he would discuss anything about the picture with me. We're delighted to have you, Miss Clark. I was playing the part I was hired to do, learn my lines, be on time, be available, take direction. That was my main concern. What was James Whale, was James Whale a hard taskmaster? No, indeed not. He was very gentle, gentlemanly, and knowledgeable. You could trust what he was saying because you knew he was doing the best. You couldn't do anything but win with him. Did you know you were going to give him work that pleased him? Did he have a way of telling you? No, he didn't do that. He would just say, one more take. He didn't tell you why, but you knew he didn't like the one you did. So you searched in your mind, in your own craft, what was it he didn't like? What does he want more of? What did I do that I didn't like? What can I change? Do you recall his relationship with the cameraman? Absolute blood brothers. They were in cahoots. He would ride the camera on the high work, and he was always behind it, checking what he was getting. Did he sketch it out at all? Yes, he always had a sketch pad and a big black pencil. He could do it fast. Oh, he would have hated this colorization. Oh, I can hear him. When he hated something, he got really vitriolic and funny. My dear, let me tell you about that. There's a real ensemble feel to Waterloo Bridge. How did you work with the other actors? Betty Davis, for example. You got one scene with her. What was your impression of her at the time? Well, I knew that Betty was under contract. I did not know that she had been considered for the lead, but when I saw her on the set, I was delighted. Oh, golly, I've got a girlfriend, somebody I can have lunch with and talk things over with. They called us in and we met with the lights on and everybody looking. It always goes the same way. How do you do? It's very nice to know you. But I thought, it's a little cool. Maybe it's because so many people are watching and I'm the so-called star and she isn't. But my goodness, what does that matter? Well, I'll give it a little time. Well, it never warmed up. But later we met and talked about it. This is what happened. Many years passed and there was a picture at MGM called The Cater Affair. Ernest Borgnine, Betty Davis, Debbie Reynolds. It was a cute little story. At this stage of my life and career, I was faced with a problem of mere existence. But I knew my talent was unsullied, and I thought, this will be it. I am aged enough, accomplished enough, and now she has accomplishments, so she has nothing to fear. 
It was only two days' work. I was the seamstress in the department store where she brought her daughter, Debbie Reynolds, to get the finest wedding gown available. She was going to spend her husband's whole salary on the child's bridal event. The poor guy didn't have that kind of money, but she was determined that this child was going to have what she didn't have. So the scene opens up with the seamstress on her knees at the hem of the dress, and Betty is walking back and forth in the scene saying different things. Well, I never look up, see. I'm just working away. Finally, this is at rehearsal. I say my little line. I think this will be all right. I look up right into Betty's face, and she said, oh, my God. And we just embraced each other. What are you doing, I said. Betty is taking me all this time, but turnabout is fair play. And she said, aren't you the one? And we just went off into the corner and enjoyed a little talk. Nothing serious, because we were both too professional to go into my circumstances. But she did say, I knew you were trying to be friendly on Waterloo Bridge, but May, I couldn't. My heart was broken. I thought I was going to get that part. I said, well, as it turned out, maybe you should have. But don't say anything about it. I enjoyed it. And so now here we are. So your relationship with her was always cordial. Oh, more than that, yeah. There was a mutual admiration and understanding. We knew the same things. When you were doing Waterloo Bridge, were you conscious of being treated like a star? No, I wasn't conscious of that at all. This was 31. I came out here in 29 and had been treated the same way. I was treated in New York. I was accustomed to it, and it was the way they treated everybody in the industry. You had something to do. You were part of an important project. It's a different attitude. You just belong or you don't. It's up to you. It's up to your talent. It's up to your behavior. Today, behavior is just kicked to the wind. It doesn't matter what they do. I wouldn't be in the same show with half the things I see. When it's right, I would crawl on my knees to be with them. Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time when I talk about Paulette Goddard in Dramatic School from 1938.